0: God, we love you, and I just thank you for a chance to come together this morning, to come together just in your name, pursuing you, pursuing your truth, submitting our lives to your will and your way. Lord, right now, we ask that you would still our minds, that we could hear your word, Stir our hearts that your word will transform and bring fruit in our daily lives, God. I pray for we as a people, the people in this room, those that have banded together as this church, this local church. Lord, that you would knit us together in spirit and truth. Lord, you would give us a common purpose and unity of the gospel. Lord, as we continue to look at Jesus' sermon from the Sermon on the Mount, We hear the teaching from his mouth. I pray that it would fulfill the work that you desired it to. Lord, we know that in Isaiah we're told your word does not return void. So we take comfort that that is the power of the teaching this morning. Not my delivery. Not my eloquence. Not my charisma or lack thereof. But your power, God. Your authority. And as Jesus teaches, he teaches with his own authority. And Lord, these words... Come in that authority. So we just, with open hearts, open hands, open lives, we come to your word now, just desiring, needing, crying out for your work to be complete. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good. Well, so if you have talked to me recently, you ask me how I'm doing, or how's life, what's going on, you will inevitably hear me talk about the remodeling of my kitchen. It has been an ongoing saga. For a few months now. It's really comical, and and my wife, I'm sure, is Amber in here right now? She's not. She would just shake her head. So we we sold our house in November, moved in with her mom, bought our house on November 18th, went to India for 10 days, came back the weekend after Thanksgiving, and I told her, hey, we're going to get all this done, and we're going to live in our house by December 19th. Yeah, and, so, and, and so the guys that are laughing the loudest are the ones that have been over to my house to help me work, and so they, you know, it's, I mean, we literally just moved in Wednesday night. I had family come in Wednesday. That was our big push, get done for Wednesday, and, and we got it to where it was livable by Wednesday, um, and, and so it's been quite the endeavor. It's been a lot of fun, um, but we, we chose to do an Ikea kitchen, and has anybody ever put together Ikea furniture before? So the IKEA instructions, there's an irony to them because they are a language all their own, even though they use no language. There's no, if you've never seen them before, it's just pictures of this kind of funny looking man that's kind of a little bit amorphous, just has just the resemblance of a person. And then he's got boards And he's got pictures and arrows and no words. And that's because Ikea is sold all over the world and it's much easier to do that and just hope that people can figure it out. Well, we are finishing up. My family came in town and the kitchen was not usable yet. And so we all started. They came in full board, just ready to help. And we're putting drawers together. And Ikea, again, a language all their own. And if you don't know how to read the language, it's hard to get there. We ended up putting all of our drawers together. Half of them were put together wrong because there's these little, little, really subtle indicators that if you're doing this, you need to skip to this page. And if you're doing this, you need to skip to this page. And they're not obvious. And if you don't know that's what they're saying, you really just think it's just some arbitrary thing on the page. So we ended up putting half of them together wrong. And and so luckily, it was an easy fix. We went to Ikea, and we were like, oh, yeah, you just twist this. You can undo it and redo it, so... But it's pretty funny. So the thing about Ikea, as soon as you understand how those directions work, as soon as you understand the language, you get to the product rather easily. But you you have to know the language of these these directions. And so as we, with that principle in mind, that's kind of how we come to our text today. We see this same principle and how we are to understand the law of God. It is only in right interpretation and application that we actually are led to God's desired outcome, to God's will. So we must approach the law of God. We must approach the truth of God, the word of God, rightly. We must understand how to interpret it rightly. We must understand how to apply it rightly. Because without that, we don't get the desired results. We get, shut. We get, we get, we get drawers that don't work. So go ahead, open your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to start in verse 21. We are continuing teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' first recorded sermon in Scripture as well as his longest recorded sermon. Again, if you give any credence to this, this should matter a lot. This is 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 the words from Jesus himself. So we're going to continue. Uh, If you can use your apps, use the Bible. If you need a Bible, look underneath you, around a chair, around you. There's some Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have that as our gift to you. Matthew five twenty one through 26 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. the last penny. So before we look at this section of Jesus' sermon, let's do a quick review to get some momentum as we come into this text. So first again, Jesus just finished teaching about the law, that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The law is good. It's not that the law is bad. It's that it's good and it points to our need for Jesus. He came to fulfill it. He fulfilled it by living it perfectly. He fulfilled it by teaching it perfectly, and he fulfilled it by, by satisfying the righteous requirement of the law, which was that sin requires death. He satisfied that in his death for you and me. So he didn't abolish it, but he fulfilled it. Again, so again, there's nothing wrong with the law. As he, as he ended, he talked about the, the he, he was exposing the error of the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes, and it's not that there was an error in the law. Again, just as we already alluded to, there's an error in the interpretation and the application of the law. Verse 20 that we just looked at, let's read it real quick just to make sure we have it. Verse 20 backing up says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never... Enter the kingdom of heaven. This verse, it acts kind of as, an, as a hermeneutical key to us. What is hermeneutics? It is, it is the study of, of how we properly interpret scripture. So, this passage really works as a hermeneutical key, a, a key to how we should interpret the, the, the following section of the Sermon on the Mount and really all of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of understanding what we walked away with. Is that, you know, last week when we talked about this verse, we talked about that your, our righteousness cannot. And in an earthly manner, exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. They held to the law, to the letter, better than anyone. And this was pointing to the righteousness accredited to you by Christ upon your confession and surrender. That now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your works that attain your righteousness. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus that makes you righteous. So you are righteous. It becomes the identity. So again, that's what we talked about. This, so understanding that as we move forward through the rest of the sermon, we must understand that Jesus is illuminating this reality. He proceeds to give an, expo- an exposition on the Jewish law and, the ju- and juxtaposes it against the Pharisaic understanding of that law. He's, he's again, expanding on teaching, illuminating, trying to get you to see the difference between between the the, the life under the law, the life where righteousness, again, is achieved through behavior and action versus life of righteousness as a citizen in the kingdom of God. One who is a citizen, again, brought into the the people of God, the kingdom of God, where there is a sovereign, holy ruler. So, again, it's not... One more clarifier, it's not a contrast of the law given through Moses, as we would know the Ten Commandments and all of the ordinances and statutes that derived out of that. It's not a contrast of that with Jesus' new law. Rather, again, one more time, it is a contrast of the Pharisees' misinterpretations and misapplications of the law with Jesus' attitude toward the law and his teaching of how the law should be lived out and understood. So I think that gives us some proper context, gives us the momentum. So what is the first thing that Jesus says in this section? Verse 21, it says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard. So what is he doing? Verse 21 marks a transition in his teaching, and Jesus is moving into this exposition of the Old Testament law. This 21 starts, is the first of six examples that Jesus uses a familiar Mosaic law, familiar Old Testament teaching, and he does it in the next 22 verses. We see that in this verse, 21. We see it in verse 27, which we'll look at next week, that section, then 31, 33, 38, and 43. Just over and over again, you've read it, you've heard it, you know this. And so he begins with this, this common understanding, this foundational teaching that has been there for the Jewish people all this time. But then he he exposes it, he expounds upon it, and he teaches it to the right understanding of what's fulfilled in him and what is to be carried forward. So, if you recall last week, we pointed out that the Pharisees had the habit of extending the law beyond its bounds. We talked about that with divorce you know, that you should not divorce. And they, you know, it's set for it in the case of adultery. It's kind of the law as it was stated. But then they, they extended it to where they took that, that credence, that allowance for divorce, and applied it to anything that displeases. And like we said, a man could divorce his wife if she burnt dinner. And he'd just have to write a letter, and it'd be done. So they had the habit of extending the law. They also had the habit of limiting the law, which we talked about last week, the example which we're going to look at today. That shall not murder. And they said, or, you know, and... As long as you don't do that, you're fine. So they had this extent, this habit of extending and limiting for, for their benefit, um, and so the teaching is is where we've seen the error. So there's two errors here that we see. I just spoke all of my notes there, so I love that when I just get rolling and then I'm oh I had that in my notes and that's good. So. I was about to redo it. I don't have to do that, right? Okay, so the Pharisees had taken the truth of God and limited it to manageable requirements. That's what they had done. The Pharisees the Pharisees had taken the truth of God and extended it and limited it to that which was manageable. Think about that. How how often do we do that? The, think about if you maybe you're familiar with the rich young ruler later on in Matthew, we see also in Mark where he was like, "Hey, what do I have to do to get into heaven?" What do I have to do to inherit that? And Jesus is like, hey, don't murder, don't steal. He lists these things and he's like, hey, I've done all that. Am I good? The only way that he was able to say that I've kept all the commandments is that he has, he has limited them down to this manageable, manageable expression of the law to where it was just stay within these bounds, do this, don't do that, and I'm good. And I'll tell you, if your adherence to the law, if your adherence to truth, if your, if your obedience to the commands of God doesn't lead you through the valley of repentance and conviction, I guarantee you have limited the truth of God to something that is manageable and acceptable to you. We must be, I mean, the, the truth, it says, it says the law of God is what exposes sin. So if we have not, if we have not brought, been brought to that place of being convicted in repentance, then we've made it manageable. And we see that's what the Pharisees did over and over again. I referred to the rich young ruler, just so you know I'm not making it up. Let's read it here. Matthew 19, 16 through 20, he says, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Again, he wants that. He wants it to be defined. He wants the limits. Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus went on to expose his heart. He was a rich guy, and he said, go and sell everything you have. And that was the one thing he couldn't let go of. So again, he had exposed his limits, but he had made it manageable. He's like, hey, I'm good. What else? What else? We see this in Paul. Paul wrote in Romans 7, just to summarize, he said that he thought, like, you could see that Paul thought he lived out the law perfectly until the law exposed that it wasn't just don't steal, but it was don't covet. Coveting, well, he, he, in the, as the Holy Spirit illuminated the truth of God, he understood that coveting was just like stealing. And all of a sudden he was like, woe is me. He was, I mean, Paul was the Jew among Jews. So again, you see that same thing in Paul. So it's the Spirit Of the law that matters. The second mistake that we see that the Pharisees made in their teaching is that they diminished our accountability only to earthly judgment. So the commandment says, Thou shalt murder. Thou shalt not murder. Let's let's try that. Thou shalt not murder, okay? That's what the commandment says. Then they kind of took it as he's kind of revealing their teaching. As Jesus is referring to their teaching, he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, and if you do, you'll be subject to the judgment, to judgment. He's talking about earthly judgment. And that comes from another passage in Numbers where he's kind of, and you see that the, the, they had taken like two, two commands of God and brought them together to, to limit. And so he's exposing that they had made the greater fear the judgment of man. Instead of the ultimate judgment of God. We have to remember that God is a holy and righteous God and that he is not only a loving heavenly father, but he is a just judge that judges rightly every time. And a just judge judges the guilty. He judges the the guilty guilty and he judges and he acquits the innocent. He condemns the guilty and he acquits the innocent. So we must understand that there's an accountability to a holy and righteous God, and the Pharisees had taken that out. They were making it, again, manageable. They were making it acceptable. They were making it to where, like, hey, we can go about daily life and make this happen and not live with this reality of our need to fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? There's an awe and a reverence it is a respect, it is an understanding of his worthiness, that there is no other authority above him. There is no one more worthy. We kind of rise up against that. We don't like the idea that God would demand something of us. But who is more worthy? No one is. He is. It makes sense. It is only our flesh, only our our, our, our self-sovereignty, our desire to make our own way that rises up against that. Our pride, our arrogance, which is the root of so much of our sin. So in living out the spirit of the law, we must understand that we are accountable to a holy God in our living in the context of a relationship that is worth giving our all. So we live with this sense of awe and reverence before God because he is worthy. But we also live our life as an offering as we live out the spirit of the law. It's an offering. It's a joy to give to the one that loves us and we love. It's a joy to to say, yes, your will, let it be mine. Here's my life. So specifically, what is the spirit of the law concerning anger? Which so I don't know if I said it clearly a second ago. Kind of our first principle here is not just the letter of the law that matters, it is the spirit. Of the law that matters, that is what Jesus is teaching and illuminating. So, what is the spirit of the law concerning anger? Let's continue in our text, Matthew five twenty two. It says, "But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment." Continuing kind of that same line of thought, that same language. So he's 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 exposing with a present understanding and then taking it deeper. So starting again, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable, liable to the hell of fire. So he started with what they knew. He started with what, they, with, with what was observed already, and he's taking it deeper. He's, 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 he's extending it in the way that it should be. So the law said, do not murder, right? That's what the law said. Jesus takes it, and he, he, just, he, he makes it impossible to contain. The law of God is meant to reveal his glory. It's meant to show people, the people of God, how to live as his people, to be his image bearers, and to point people to their need for him. That's what the law is intended to do, the truth of God. And thinking about what we've been talking about, just relaxing the law to manageable things. how often do we relax the law in order to make sure we are religious enough. To think about, again, what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, hey, it's not just don't murder. It's also, hey, it's, it's what happens on the inside. It's what you're feeling on the inside. I think about that. Like, what is it, like, where do we limit? How do we relax the law? What are some practical examples? Like, just kind of frivolously speaking, one that I, that I get convicted about all the time, and it's, in the same time, it seems a little silly, but it's like the speed limit. And I hate talking about this. I hate it. But the speed limit, like we all have that number that we feel is acceptable to be over the speed limit. But at what point are you breaking the law? The speed limit's 70 as it is on many of the expressways here in Houston. I mean, technically you're breaking the law at 71. We're like, well, there's a margin of error on the radar guns and it's like nine miles an hour. So we can go 79 and we're good. Or or if you're fiscally driven, hey, you know, hey, at 14 miles an hour, it doesn't affect your insurance. So it's really more just if you can afford the ticket, but you don't want your insurance to increase. Like, that's kind of how, like, that, that's, a, that's a funny example, but that kind of shows the principle kind of getting more personal I think about some of the ones that are common to us, and I think about the, the, the picture like, that we are told to, to give as Jesus gave, to give sacrificially. And I don't just mean money, but I do mean money, but I also mean your time, of how you prioritize your time. I mean your gifts, how you use your gifts. Are they to benefit just you? Are they to, again, to, to redeem the world and glorify God? So we think about that, and like to, to, to limit it, we, we often have this, like, this comparative righteousness when it comes to this stuff. We look around and we find comfort that we are giving more than that person, whether it be money, whether it be time, whether it be talent, whatever it may be. We're like, hey, I'm doing more than that guy. You know, he spends, he spends $1,000 a month on Starbucks. I buy my coffee at Second Cup. You know, which I love Second Cup, but I'm just saying, like we have this relative righteousness when it comes to the ways that we limit the law into manageable ways. Another, to again, getting a little bit more personal, we think about kind of the the idea that, hey, I want to, I want to. Uh, be holy as God has me holy, especially with my, with my sexual purity. And, and you know, and I, I'm not, not going to sleep around, but it's okay if I know that I, if, I'm, if I'm in a relationship that I'm invested in and we have love for one another. And we're probably going to get married. That's the way that we relax a lot. We think about whether you're married or not. We think about pornography. I mean, I've heard it said. I, have, I mean, I, this is a quote. Looking at pornography has to be better than sleeping around looking at pornography has to be better than having an affair. I mean, I've heard those words spoken. And I mean, that to me, that, that reality, and you can apply that concept to any of these things in our life, but that's a picture of a very real way that we limit the spirit of the law of God. You know, I was talking to an engaged couple that uh, was living together, and they asked me if what I thought about that, and and, they, and he, they said that they had studied Scripture. They looked at the Greek, and they looked at pornea, the you know, kind of the word for sexual impurity, and they said, you know, it just means it doesn't apply past sexual intercourse. Because I asked them, we're just getting frank here. I asked them, like, hey, so, I mean, are you guys sleeping together? they like, well, we sleep in the same bed. I was like, well, are you having sex? They're like, no. Why well, are you doing anything? Yeah well, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and they said, pretty much everything but sex. And, and I was like, do you really think that's what God intends? Does that really seem like what God intended in, in his call for purity? Does that, does that seem to line up with all of Scripture, not just this one word? And yet they felt like they were faithful to the word because they had taken it down to one word. And they looked at one word and they said, this word has allowance. They said, so we're okay. That's a real picture of how we limit the law. But we cannot isolate any part of scripture. We cannot isolate any part of the truth of God. We've got to take it all. And, and the point is, is that I'm, I might get ahead of myself. So how about I just leave it there and maybe I'll have to wrap it up. If you don't feel like I wrap that up, just raise your hand before I finish and we'll come back, okay? I think I'm going to, though. Um, <laughs> but Jesus, he took the law of not committing murder and he illuminated, illuminated the fact that it concerns everything that is in the heart. Not just the act of taking a life. So it's the way that you feel about someone, the contempt in your heart towards a person. And all of a sudden, like you think Jesus coming, you think the Savior coming to, to make a better way. He says, the law was imperfect, now it's perfect in me. You think that it's going to make it easier, right? Like, but before, all I had to do was not kill someone. Now, now I can't be angry at someone? Like, how does that work? Like, that's not easier, Jesus, Right, like uh, that's not cool. Like you're supposed to make it better for me, not worse. But he does. He, he takes it and he says, "Hey, like it's not just don't kill someone. It's also what's in your heart towards people that matters." So we must not entertain sin. As we're kind of building this point, and we cannot entertain sin. We understand that God is both, like we've said, our just judge and heavenly Father. Because when that happens. Again, we understand the full picture, that he's worthy of our life and our offering and our obedience, and he's also worthy because of his love, and they don't compete with each other. It doesn't make sense to give the bare minimum when you think about it in those terms. I mean, we work, how often, bless you, how often do we work to pacify sin instead of killing sin? Which is better? When we looked at the Beatitudes a while back, we looked at Matthew 5, 6, and we saw that it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in the context of what Jesus was teaching, he was saying, blessed are those who pursue to live a righteous life, to live out the laws of God, who vehemently and passionately and urgently work towards being rid of sin." Jesus already taught that. And he says that is, that is a characteristic of a Christian, not something that you do so that you can be a Christian. Because you are in Christ, because he has made you new, because you've taken on his identity, this is who you are. You will hunger and thirst for righteousness, and in that you will be satisfied. But he's saying at the same time, while well, he's saying you must pursue and work to be rid of sin. But more often than not, we work to pacify sin. We just, we just make sure that it's not a big like we make sure that the grievance is acceptable. Again, I'm still just expanding on the idea of how we limit God's law into something that is manageable for us. We cannot work to pacify sin in our life. We cannot make allowances for it just to kind of hide tucked away. I mean, one of the most common things is just the visible. We make sure it stays invisible. And as long as no one knows, we're okay. Again, thinking about what the Pharisees had done. They made it to where the judgment they feared more was the judgment of man instead of the judgment of God. So again, we do the same thing. We have a tendency to be okay with the ones that nobody sees. And we tuck it away. But yet, that's just pacifying, not killing. We want to kill the sin in our life. Our faithfulness is not to be measured in the negative. What does that mean? It means, is your faithfulness measured by what you do and don't do? By what you, making sure that we don't, again, that's what the Pharisees have done in this time. Their their righteousness was measured by what they didn't do. It was all defined in the negative. So we're not going to murder. The truer heart, the spirit of the law is that our faithfulness is expressed from the fact that we have been given our all, that we are from the fact that we are to give our all to the one who gave his all. Again, God, we are the offending party, but yet he gave his all. So our faithfulness should be in the positive, the expression of giving. I don't mean like think positive. I mean it is, it is, it is the willful work of giving our all. It isn't, again, not the limited, how much can I do before I must not do? It's just here, here's my life, God, here's here's all that I have, here's my understanding, here's my holiness, here's my here's my everything. In the positive, the offering, not in the negative of only of holding back what you can. That's our faithfulness when we think about what is in Christ. As related to anger, our anger must reflect that of God's character and view of his creation as we start kind of twisting kind of turning into the into the uh, the practical teaching of anger here we th- we see in Ephesians 4 it says that we can be angry and it said actually it says not just it says be angry like Ephesians 4 says be angry so there are things to be angry about right so it's not that we're never angered but it says be angry without sin and we do that we are angry without sin by being angry about what angers God. And to look at our text, we see two key words that help us understand how our anger in relating to people can be right. When we think about the principles of God of being angry, what God is angry about, we see this first word in our text. It's the word that is translated insult there. That's the Greek word raka. The second is, the, is a, similar, a similar teaching, a similar principle, and it's, it's the words translated you fool. And and so the word raka is this, it's a word intended, it's something spoken intended to injure. Now think about the base command of thou shalt not murder. Now we're over here taking it to just how we relate to people in our anger. All of a sudden we understand the force of this is that, again, that, that that willful word to injure someone is just as grievous as the actual infliction of a blow to death is what God is saying. And, and so we see that. So first we see this injurious word in the, the, and kind of to take out what, to take it to what this word means, it is worthless. This injurious word to call someone worthless. You are worthless saying it with the intent to hurt and to injure. And then this other word, the word translated you fool, it is to say that someone is morally worthless. So how is that an offense to the way that God sees creation, to the way that God intends for us to relate to people? we see people as God sees them. What we're being taught here by Jesus is that our anger should always be directed toward the sin, not the person, the sin. Our anger should never result in our wrath being exacted. When you are angry about the things that angers God and you express it in a way that God would express it, it may be directed towards a person, but it actually points that person to Jesus. It actually points that person to their error in their need for a Savior. The work of the law exposing sin, it does the work of the law exposing sin. You get to be a part of that when your anger is motivated by the same things. But your anger is never directed towards the person because you understand that we are all fallen, that we are all in need, and it is the fallen state, the work of sin, the being dead in our flesh, that causes that, that only that makes that a part of our life. Again, we were, we were created without sin. It was at the fall that sin entered. And so, your, your anger is directed at the one who imprisons, who enslaves. So all of a sudden you recognize that it is, man, when someone offends, when someone's thoughtless, it's fruitless for you to get angry at them. Now let them know how you feel, but do it in a way that helps them see the truth. So we see that our anger should never result in our wrath being exacted, as we see in that word raka. Raka. And then also we see, as God looks at people, no one is worthless. No one is morally worthless. Now wait, we are all worthless, right? But no one is incapable, is out of the reach of redemption in Christ. Salvation is for all those who call on Christ. Redemption is for all those who call on Jesus so to say that someone, to say that you fool, that you're morally worthless, is to say that God is not capable, to say that the gospel is not sufficient. So in our anger, we must reflect the heart and truth of God. We must see people as he sees them. So how does this impact our responses to people who wrong us? Our responses and our anger must also um, We must respond to anger as God did. And just real quickly, God acted on behalf of his offender. Who is his offender? You and I. He didn't have to. We don't deserve it. We offended him. We we sinned against him. And if you're like, hey, Adam and Eve that I didn't, you have. We said that before in here, we have all sinned. We've all acted against the will and the way and the rule of God. We have offended, but yet he acted on our behalf. Yes, his, his wrath rose up. It was demanded in that offense, in that sin. His wrath was upon us. We were due death not just death of the flesh, but death of the Spirit for eternity in hell. But he acted on our behalf. How did he do that? By sending his one and only Savior, Jesus. And we follow the person of Jesus. Jesus came in the flesh so that we could see the image of God, the heart of God, the person of God expressed and lived out. So Jesus, what did Jesus do? He laid down his life for the offender. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as they put them on the cross. In our anger, we get to act as God acts. We get to exhibit the character, heart, will of God by acting on behalf of our offender. That means you have got to lead out in laying down your life for that person, which is horrible. (laughs) I was thinking of other words. We'll just say no one likes that no one like but that is what we're that's what we're called to do that's what's going to that's what's going to allow you to to be to again for your righteousness to be exhibited and grown it's what's going to be a part of a work in that person's life last night Josue talked about uh, a guy in Rwanda he's going to do a documentary in Rwanda coming up this year and the guy his, his father who, who was killed by the guy and that was in prison and the the family his whole family was killed brother was killed He went to prison as he came, as a Christian, he went to prison and told the guy, I forgive you. As a result, the guy came to know Christ. They live in the same village. Again, like that, he went and spoke freedom and grace and life to that guy. Did not deserve it. None of us, that's our first inclination. But to respond to anger the same way that God did is to act on behalf of your offender, to lay down your rights for their sake and for the glory of God, and in the end, that is for your sake as well. And our second principle, which picks up steam from here, is that your offering, your gift, is that our living out of the law of God is meant to be a way of life, because it is because it is an expression of new life. Matthew 5, 23 says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this is in quick fashion. This could be a whole message in itself. But first we must see that God desires for us to live in unity. Romans 12, 18, just one verse of many. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Our relationships matter. Again, we see that just in creation, that God created Adam in perfection and perfect unity, and yet he saw that it wasn't right for him to be alone. He created a human companion, and when Adam saw him, he basically said, at last, what I've been looking for, as he was walking with God. It wasn't that God didn't satisfy, God fully satisfied, but God created us for that human relationship. We must, it matters, the relationship matters. We must work to, to live at peace and unity with one another. How do we contextualize this, this idea of bringing your offering to the altar and leaving it there? Because we don't really make sacrifices anymore. We don't, we don't slaughter the, the ox or the, or the goat or anything like that and sprinkle the blood and burn the meat and all that stuff. We don't really do that anymore. We don't bring gifts to the altar anymore. You know, I've never seen that happen here on a Sunday. You can do it on my birthday, but not here on Sunday, okay? Okay. Um, totally unrelated. Let's not make there be anything confusing here. Okay, anyway, so, oh man, that's dangerous. Uh, So, but we don't really bring, we don't bring gifts anymore is, is what we're talking about here in the Old Testament. So what is the, how do we understand this for us? I mean, let's just say our life, our life is our offering. So to think about that how this has to be a constant thing, because if we're constantly offering our life, you've got to be purposeful in living, reconciled in your relationships. You cannot take it lightly. You've got to be relentless at acting as God does, responding to the offense as God does, for the sake of his glory for his purpose and the redemption of them. And in that, you cannot, you cannot be something that ebb and flows. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your life is your offering. And if you want to bring a pleasing offering to God, you've got to take this seriously. And notice there it says, leave it first Go and reconcile, then come and worship. We cannot entertain sin. We cannot pacify sin. That is sin. We can't can't allow space for anything that mars the image of God. We are His image bearers, and that image has been restored as we have come into Christ. And when we live that way, we mar that. And so He's saying, hey, go, take care of this. Relational disunity in the body of Christ is destructive relational unity with someone who doesn't know Christ is destructive because you're you are known to be his image bearer like you're his ambassador they look to you to see him this is not and again it's an expression of identity we want to give no grounds to the destructiveness of harbored anger that leads to bitterness Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So because our righteousness is no longer merely activity, what we do or don't do, but now is our new identity in Christ, we must live in a constant state of dealing with things quickly. Man, speak truth and love. We're great at speaking, some of us are great at speaking truth where we just get it out there and we hit people with it. Some of us are great at speaking love where we just say, hey, it's good, and you don't ever deal with the problem. We got to do both. You want to speak the full truth. You want to be loving. You want to be humble. You want to be respectful. You want to be direct. You want to be bold, and you want to do it for their good. Don't let your wrath be enacted upon them. Point them to Jesus by revealing the truth of God. God commands and demands our worship in all things, but Jesus still emphasizes the importance of laying down your life and resolving and reconciling your relationships before you continue in your offering. It's pretty much saying like, hey, stop. Go take care of it. That should matter to you more than anything, First be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. And our last point, closing quickly, is that Jesus, his teaching on anger, points to the coming judgment of God and cries out for the gospel of Jesus. And this hit me so hard between the eyes. Let's read these last verses, verse 25 and 26. It says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And to try to pull out again some, some practical picture here, I think really is not the heart of this text because it's really, it would be repeating what we've already taught. I really think the driving force of this should lead us to Jesus in the gospel. Your accuser, your accuser, All of our accusers is our falling short of God's righteous requirement. The law of God is your accuser, and you are moving toward the day of judgment. Each one of us are walking through this life alongside the law toward the day of judgment, and the law has made its accusation against us. The truth of God has made its accusation against us, and it's saying, do not delay. There is one hope, and his name is Jesus and in Him, the law was, was fulfilled, was met, was the, the righteous requirement was met. It says, make your confession, make it right, surrender, do not delay, do it today. The judgment of God says that only those who call on Jesus will know relief. So be reconciled and redeemed from the wrath of God in Christ. Hear the stark reality here in this last sentence. It says, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. There's just no wiggle room. So the good news, what's the good news here? What is the crying out for the gospel here? It is that you will never be able to pay your debt. You're like, oh, that's great. Why is that? Why does that? Because that points us to the good news. The law reveals sin, which reveals our need for a Savior, which allows us to come to the place of surrendering and finding wholeness and salvation in Christ. Jesus paid your debt in full, and he paid it forever, in full and forever. That's the good news. When we hear this, man, it should be like this, oh, this wait. but then all of a sudden you're like, but wait, Jesus, he made a way, he redeemed, he ransomed. Jesus is the hope of the world. Say that without, without bashfulness. Say it with confidence, proclaiming that. There is no other hope for people in the world Man, people are, I was thinking again last night, so uh, there's more context I'm not going to, but we, we watched a documentary last night about some people in Italy and, and their their view. And one, one woman was saying how she tried Buddhism when she came to a crisis in her life. And she was just in despair and she had a friend and seemed to be working for her. So that's how she got into Buddhism. And I'll tell you, people are open now, I'm not validating Buddhism. What I'm, what I'm pointing out is that people are open to a need of something outside themselves in times of crisis and transition. And I was just talking to Megan Moore last night and about her. she works for an oil company and just how it's a hard environment right now. But yet how knowing that that's happening around you, man, be sensitive. Many of you are in that same place. Be sensitive. People around you are f- afraid. They're insecure. Their foundations are pulling, being pulled out from underneath them that's crisis. You have opportunities with the truth of God to point them to Jesus. That's just a freebie maybe. I think it related when I started talking about it. It still does because it's about Jesus and the gospel. But Jesus is the hope of the world. Say it without bashfulness. Say it with full conviction because it is your hope. He's the only one who satisfies the anger of God towards sin. He is the one who can stay your anger towards others. He is the one that shows you how to relate to others in anger without sinning. That is how Jesus is turning the law from just something that we do to the expression of who we are in Christ. We end each sermon in a time of prayer, uh, and, and we we allow people to we ask people to pray out loud if they feel led. We or you can pray silently, or if you don't do either, we ask you to listen to the hearts of God being expressed. Uh, in this time of prayer today, I want us to. To focus kind of on these things. Pray for those you are angry with. Pray for God to reveal areas and relationships you are harboring anger with. Pray for your anger to reflect God's attitude towards sin and his beloved creation. And overall, just pray that the people of God would, would reveal the reality of God, the character of God, and would give glimpses of the tangible glimpses of the kingdom of God. In living out this way, we are living a world that is not bound to these futile these works. Again, the whole teaching of the kingdom as we work through the sermon, that's what's happening. This is a glimpse. This is how the people of God reveal the reality of a tangible kingdom that is and is to come. Let's pray for that work to be done. I'll open us. We'll pray for a little bit and Travis will come up and lead us in communion. God, I love you so much. Thank you for your love for me. I thank you that you have made a way for me to know you in Christ. I thank you that in your In your demanding, in your wrath that was demanded against my sin, you acted on my behalf. Lord, that you sent your son Jesus. You took on flesh to live and be sacrificed for me. God, I pray that we would not limit the law or extend it. We would not limit your truth or extend it to manageable, to manageable. I pray that for myself. I pray that I would not have this comparative righteousness to the people around me, but I would seek your righteousness. I pray that you would reveal any way in me any roots of 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 angerness or bitterness in me, or that I could go and make a right confession to those I need to and Lord there would be restoration and Lord there would be unity in the body of Christ, and if there's any of those that don't know Jesus, that it would point them to you. Lord, let us be a people that have reverence for you and for your word, Lord, that we would feast on it, we would hunger for it, that we would be in it daily. And Lord, as you reveal your truth to us, that we would just respond in full obedience, Lord, knowing that it's for your glory and for our good and for the redeeming work of the world around us. Our lives are our offering. Our lives are our, our worship. Help us to be humble and make them acceptable. Thank you for Jesus, the salvation we have in him, in his name.